Welcome to Table Talk, where each week I unpack ideas and insights from Christian theology and spirituality that help you become a thoughtful, calm, and just a downright great human being. My name is Brett Zilford, pastor at The Table, church in Sexy, Texas, and today I want to offer part three in my series, Why I Am a Gay-Affirming Christian. So basically in this series, I'm unpacking why I think that it's not a sin to be gay and that LGBTQI plus people in monogamous, that means one-to-one, committed, marital relationships are not in sin and thus should be fully included in the life and leadership of the church. Of course, historically, the biggest hindrance to my position in a Christian context stems from the way we've read certain biblical passages— So with that in mind, I'd like to take two Old Testament texts today that are commonly held up as proof that God finds gay and lesbian people to be not not merely in sin, but really something of an abomination. That's the language used, a a sort of monstrous sinner. So I'd like to explain why gay-affirming Christians like myself don't find that interpretation very compelling. Uh, But before I jump in, let me offer a quick caveat Inevitably, when I begin talking about how we interpret the Bible, people cry foul. They say, I'm not interested in such and such scholars or your interpretation of the Bible, Brett. I just want the truth. I don't want the confusions of man, but the clarity of scripture. If that's you, then you should go back and engage my two previous Table Talk episodes. There I name that you and I don't simply read the Bible for its plain meaning. You and I interpret the Bible. That's true for everyone, and it becomes especially important when we're dealing with a very ancient text, like the scriptures, which are set in a very different cultural context. It's important that we be doubly careful then, that we're not simply assuming, oh, yeah, 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 what that's talking about, that in, you know, Leviticus, in the book of Leviticus or something, that's exactly what we in the 21st century are talking about. All right, so enough of a preface, let's get on to our texts. The first is Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, which says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Similarly, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13 says, If a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They're to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Now, let's notice this text just called for the death of someone participating in a male-male sexual encounter. All right, what might be going on here, and might the text not have in mind Rick and Carl or Sue and Rachel down the street living their quiet married lives? Instead, might something else be going on? So coming back to my last episode and the scholar James Brownson's statement that What the Bible says when it comes to same-gender sexuality is quite clear, but why it says it, and therefore what the moral logic is, that's quite a different matter. So let's look at the context. What did same-sex eroticism look like in the broader Canaanite culture, which itself provided Israel's cultural context, and to which Israel was likely reacting well, based on the work of scholar Marty Nicenin in his book Homoeroticism in the Biblical World, male-to-male sexual activity in Canaan likely happened exclusively or almost exclusively within the context of pagan cultic temple prostitution. Nicenin writes, 
The surprising reference to child sacrifice in a list of sexual offenses strengthens the impression that there is a cultic background. It has been commonly assumed, therefore, that the writers of the Holiness Code, that's these passages of Leviticus, that the writers of the Holiness Code associated homoerotic behavior with sex connected to cultic, that is, kind of religious, practices. So, for example, the command of Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman, is preceded, of course, by verse 21, which says, you shall not give any of your children to sacrifice them to Molech. Now, Molech was a Canaanite deity that people would, well, sacrifice their kids to. So it was a religious, cultic, ritual act. In other words, it seems that the context of Leviticus 18, and particularly these verses, is is, um, religious in nature. It was like religious um, rituals and practices. More traditionalist folks will probably push back at this point, and they're going to say, well, but you're speculating. Like, okay, obviously, verse 21, that was, you know, that's a child sacrifice. Clearly, that's religious. But perhaps verse 22 wasn't. Maybe verse 22 really is referring to Rick and Carl, the gay couple down the street. And maybe the moral logic, therefore, is not temple prostitution is bad, but rather something like, the failure to act out one's appropriate gender role is to go against God's created order, or something to that effect. Here's what I'd say. Again, drawing on James Brownson in his book, Bible, Gender, and Sexuality, he points out that if this objection were the case, then you would expect a corresponding prohibition of female-female sexual relations in Leviticus. And specifically, you know, verse 2013 and verse um, 1822, or sorry, 21. Um, and, and yet, that's like totally absent. In other words, if the underlying moral logic isn't at all cultic religious practices, um, as I'm arguing it is, and instead is in fact some sort of focus upon the failure of the genders to live out their God-ordained biological sexuality, well then why does the text stop at prohibiting men? I mean, why not mention women too? This point gains extra force when we note that the prohibition of sex with animals in chapter 18, verse 23, and chapter 20, verses 15 and 16, mentions both men and women. So to recap, what I'm suggesting is that based on what we know about same-sex practices in the broader Canaanite culture, combined with the reference to Molech in the preceding verse of chapter 18, I believe the context for the verses against same-gender sexual activity in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus chapter 20 is likely that of some, some sort of strange pagan temple prostitution ritual. Now, you say, but Brett speculating why not just keep it straightforward and simple i don't need to understand homosexuality in the broader canaanite culture to understand the bible's take Uh, but remember our history remember how taking that simplistic approach the topic of for example slavery led us as churches to some incredibly naive and hurtful interpretations because we had 
not just people, but even pastors saying, look, slavery is slavery is slavery. Don't try to get around the truth of God's word by bringing in the cultural context of ancient slave practices. You're just trying to be slippery with God's word. No, no, I'm not trying to be slippery. I'm not. I'm just trying to understand the cultural context in which the Israelites found themselves and how, and kind of ask the question how that might have impacted their writing of passages like Leviticus 18.22 and chapter 20, verse 13. Now, might I be wrong? Sure. I mean, when we're talking about studying ancient cultures, we're inevitably doing some speculating but I still think doing this kind of work makes it more likely that we'll get it right. All that to say, same-gender pagan temple prostitution may have been a very relevant concern in the ancient world, but it's not one that maps well into the 21st century in the discussion we're having in the church about whether or not, for example, gay folks should marry or be in church leadership. Now, in my next episode, I'll dive into a few New Testament texts. So that's all for today. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with all your friends, comment, and subscribe. Grace and peace.